Here we go. The fun one. <laughs> the title of today's uh, sermon is going to be Humble Dependency. And the theme, if you, um, if you don't take away anything else from this sermon, here's what I want you to take away. Run away from sin and run to Jesus. So for the past two Sundays, we stepped back from 1 Corinthians as we reflected upon the death, uh, burial, resurrection, and imminent return of Jesus. And I hope that you were encouraged with those messages as I was in delivering them. If you missed them, you can go online. They're posted there for you. Uh, we need to hear the old, old story again and again because it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the center of everything that we do. It's the source of the community that we enjoy here every Sunday and every week. And it's the message of 1 Corinthians. Well, three weeks ago, we took a quick look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't know if you remember what the theme of chapter 9 was, but the theme was something that Paul repeated uh, three times in that chapter. It was, I make no use of my rights. And he repeated that in verse 12, verse 15, and verse 18 of chapter 9. And we saw that Paul willingly gave up his personal rights so that he could present the gospel free of charge to anyone and everyone that would listen. And we saw that Paul made himself a servant to all so that he could win as many people as he could. And what he meant by win people was that he wanted to gain favor with those people so he could present the gospel to them and they would, Lord willing, accept the gospel just as they accepted him. And then Paul and ended his treatise on individual rights with a sports analogy. And he talked about how athletes willingly give up their own rights and exercise self-control in order to obtain a crown, to win, right? But a crown that burns up. But we as Christians, uh, Paul makes the analogy, we give up our rights and we exercise self-control to gain an imperishable prize. And that prize, as I suggested to you, is other people coming into a saving relationship with God and receiving eternal life and being joined together with us in a community of faith. But Paul ended chapter 9 with an interesting statement. You can turn there if you want to. It's in verse 27, and we didn't look at it at that time. He said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the question I want to begin this morning with is, what did Paul mean by being disqualified? Is Paul saying that he, if he doesn't discipline his body and keep it under control, that he will lose his salvation? I've heard the passage preached that way, uh, but in context, that's not at all what Paul is saying. Our actions, hear me, our actions do not determine our eternal security. Jesus' actions determine our eternal security. And so what is Paul talking about? Well, the word disqualified can also mean rejected or cast away. And now, to understand what Paul is saying, we have to look at the context of the sentence inside of the bigger context of the paragraph, which is inside of the context of chapters 8 through 10, and the overall argument that Paul is making for us to understand what this is saying. So Paul says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, Paul is saying, if he doesn't discipline his body give up his rights for the sake of others, and exercise self-control, he would be in danger of being rejected or cast away by people after preaching to them. All right? Why would the hearers of his preaching reject him if he didn't keep himself disciplined and willingly give up his rights? Well, because his actions would not be in sync with his words. So with the scenario that's under discussion in chapters 8 through 10, eating meat offered to idols, 
Say Paul stood upon his rights and exercised his freedom to eat meat that was offered to idols in the presence of idol worshipers. It's not a stretch to imagine that in the minds of those idol worshipers as he's partaking with them, Paul, through his actions, would be giving credence to and worshiping that idol in their minds, right? And then Paul would turn around and he would preach about Jesus being the only God to those same people. What do you think would happen? Well, most likely Paul would be disqualified in that he and his message would be rejected. Why? Because to them, Paul had just participated in worshiping their idol with them. So how could Jesus be the only God, right? Obviously, it was really important for Paul to live a crucified life so that others would learn about the crucified Savior. So chapter 9 was about giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. And now we come to chapter 10, where Paul picks up the conversation of idolatry and food offered to idols again. Remember, the big picture of chapters 8 through 10 is that Paul is trying to correct a faulty Corinthian application of something that is sound theologically, of a sound theological belief, right? Chapter 8, we learned the Corinthians were, were accurately, soundly saying that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one, correct? From that theological truth, though, they then deduced that they could eat meat offered to idols and it would be okay. It would mean nothing because the idol was nothing. And Paul affirmed their theological understanding. However, being right or exercising our personal freedom is not what we aim for as Christians. Love is. And because though the Corinthians were free in Christ to exercise their personal rights, there is a deeper fundamental premise upon which we make application. Not all of life is premised upon personal freedom and individual rights. As Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Application of theology is not premised upon freedom, but upon love. Chapter 8, Paul challenged them to love the weaker brother. Chapter 9, Paul challenged them to love the, the lost unbeliever. And in chapter 10, Paul challenges them to love God. And Paul goes on to say in chapter 13 that love does not insist on its own way. In fact, it was Jesus who exemplified that love considers others more significant than itself. So as we make application of our theology then in the context of relating to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in relating to the lost and in, re in our relationship with God, our Savior Jesus Christ, our liberty does not determine our actions. Love does. Now today, as we learn from Paul about what it means to love the Lord our God more than our own rights, I'm going to admit that chapter 10 presents some very interesting and possibly confusing concepts because Paul uses quite a few examples from the Old Testament, and then he applies those examples to the church. So I want to say this before we go any further. Here at KMCC, we strongly believe that the Word of God is our authority, the entire Word of God. This includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both are written for our benefit, our learning, our application to our lives. This is our understanding because we believe that the whole Word of God is one story pointing to one person, and his name is Jesus who we sang about this morning. In fact, little parentheses here, an inf infomercial for you. Uh, Lord willing, beginning in the fall, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings. Now, many people when I first came were like, can you please preach from the Old Testament? So I'm getting there. See, I heard you. Uh, I was contemplating preaching through an Old Testament book anyway, and particularly one of the first five books. And then we came to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and God's Spirit confirmed it for me. 
Paul makes references to the book of Exodus in chapters 10, and he did the same back in chapter 5 when he talked about lumps of leaven and Passover and all of that. And so because Paul states in chapter 10, verse 11, that all these things are written for our example and for our learning, we're going to see what God has for us in that great Old Testament book of redemption, the book of Exodus. So that's where we're headed in the fall, and I'm excited to walk through that book together with you and bring to light some of these things that Paul is talking about here in chapter 10. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. As I said in our passage for today, Paul is going to make some very interesting correlations between Israel and the church. And some of this room may be a little uncomfortable with these correlations. But I want to remind us that we must have an open mind enough to allow the text of Scripture to say what it says. As people under the authority of Scripture, we come to Scripture humbly allowing it to tell us how to think and how to interpret the Bible itself. We don't come to Scripture with our preconceived notions or assumptions or long-held theological presuppositions, such as systematic theology, dispensational theology, covenant theology, and try to fit the Bible into our theological understandings. If you don't know what those terms mean, good, because then you and I will get along very well. They aren't that important. They're theological frameworks, but they're just that, frameworks. Instead, we come to Scripture with the humble desire for allowing Scripture to change our minds, to renew our minds, our preconceived notions, our assumptions, and our theological presuppositions. We come to it hungry to learn. Because here's the deal. Paul is connecting Israel with the Corinthian church in this passage because both the Corinthian church and Israel struggled with division in their redeemed communities. In both cases, their division came as a result of theological knowledge divorced from love and accompanied by sinful pride and arrogant self-centeredness and idolatry. So, in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel was a redeemed people of God. They had been newly saved out of centuries of idolatry, paganism, sexual promiscuity, and slavery in Egypt. And as a people, they had not experienced freedom, so they did not know how to live with one another in a community in appropriate ways. They did not know what godly love looked like. They were newly saved. They were learning who God was. God gave them a new covenant at Mount Sinai. The fact that they were God's covenant people, chosen and loved, redeemed and free because of the salvation that God graciously gave to them, was remembered daily as they ate physical bread and drank water from a rock in the wilderness. Likewise, the church in Corinth was a redeemed people of God. They had been newly saved out of centuries of idolatry and paganism, sexual promiscuity, and slavery. As people, they had not experienced freedom in Christ, so they did not know how to live with one another in a community in appropriate ways. They did not know what godly love looked like. They were newly saved. They were learning who God was. God gave them a new covenant in Jesus Christ. The fact that they were God's covenant people, chosen and loved, redeemed and free because of the salvation that God graciously gave to them was remembered on a daily or a regular basis as they ate physical bread and drank wine in the wilderness city of pagan Corinth. You see the correlation? In the books of Exodus and Numbers, we see that Israel had many factions and divisions. They were divided over following Moses, their leader. They were divided because of their sexual practices. They were disunified because of unhealthy interactions with one another, which resulted in them going to court before Moses. They had factions regarding the food they ate, division over who they took wives, and all of that. Unfortunately, it was similar in Corinth. 
there were factions in the Corinthian church over which apostle they followed, factions over sexual freedom or lack of them, factions in court, factions stemming from eating the Lord's Supper, and factions regarding gifts, and so on. So there's a lot of correlations between Israel and the Corinthian church. And Paul brings it all home by stating that the division in their ranks was due to them turning their eyes off of God and toward idolatry. And so Paul gives the Corinthians three things to consider when tempted with idolatry, and they were to remember, and these are the points in your outline, to remember the blessings of salvation, examples for our instruction, and the faithfulness of God's provision. So that's our, let's go to our first point, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, verse 1, Paul wants his readers to be aware of something, and that those readers include us as well. He did not want them or us to be unaware of something. And here's what Paul wanted them and us as his brothers and sisters in Christ, to be aware of and to understand. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate the same spiritual food. So Paul links Israel with this Gentile church in pagan Gentile cities, saying that their fathers were the nation of Israel, but Corinthians were not Jews. So they were Gentiles. Right? How could Paul do this? Isn't he stretching the application of Old Testament too far? That was written for Israel, wasn't it? Right? Not for us in the church age, after all. Here's the deal, though. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's altogether appropriate. And Paul linked the two peoples together precisely because they are together. Israel and the church are both the covenant people of God. Israel was under the Old Covenant, the church is under the new covenant. We are one in Christ Jesus. Jew and Gentile are called the people of God in Christ Jesus. Peter in the book of Acts and Paul in the book of Romans say that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We are all the people of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Preaching that emphasizes a distinction between Jew and Gentile is an error. Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that the Israelites are our fathers in this spiritual sense. He says, all were under the cloud. He's referring to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, which says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So all were under the cloud. All passed through the sea, he says. He's referring to Exodus 14, 2, where he says, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on them on their right hand and on their left. Then he says, all were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Interesting. Paul is linking or allegorizing these two experiences with the Corinthian experience of being baptized by the Spirit, the cloud, baptized by water, immersion. So the Israelites going through the water of the Red Sea was the symbol of God's gracious redemption from bondage in Egypt. And the very act of Israel being resurrected out of the water, so to speak, God destroyed the Egyptian principalities and powers that enslaved them, and now they were his people. 
So there's a lot of symbolism going on here. Then he says, all ate the same spiritual food. Paul is referring to Exodus 15, or 16, 15, which says the people saw this stuff on the ground, and they're like, what is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, bread in the wilderness. Then he says, all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul's referring to Exodus 17, 6, which says, Behold, I will stand, God's talking to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and they all drank from this rock in the wilderness. So the whole nation drank from that rock. It's a miracle. Water doesn't come out of a rock. Not in the wilderness either. And Paul continues by saying something a bit interesting. The rock followed them. Now, there's a legend among the Jews that the rock from which Moses got water actually somehow followed them through the wilderness, giving them continuous water throughout their time in the barren wasteland. That's the legend. Now, Paul's bringing up that legend, not necessarily to affirm it, but to affirm Christ's continual presence with us. Right? See that? He says the rock was Christ. And that's a surprising correlation, but not when you think about what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 13, anyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst again. The water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then Jesus continued, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there's all that symbolism, all this stuff going on here, right? Here's the thing to remember from those first four verses. The point isn't to fixate on metaphors, knowledge of Old Testament stories, how they relate to the New Testament church. The thing to pull from it is that the spiritual Israel and the church are one. The Corinthians, just like the ancient Israelites, experienced life-giving redemption accompanied by powerful signs of God's sustaining presence and power. The Corinthians, just like the Israelites, did not do anything to merit their salvation and did nothing to secure their salvation. The Israelites simply received the miraculous work of God as they walked through the sea as a redeemed people. The Corinthian church, as well, simply received the miraculous work of God as they went through the waters of baptism as a redeemed people. And as God's people, all our fathers simply received God's continued gracious provision for life and godliness through the person of Jesus Christ, the spiritual rock, who was always with them. So we are to remember these blessings of our salvation that we are graciously redeemed and provided for and protected just like the Israelites were. We covered a lot in a few minutes, but then verse 5 starts with an interesting statement. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul, we're in our point two now, examples for our instruction. Paul says, you know, God was not pleased with most of them. 
surprising statement, being as they were God's chosen people, His redeemed people, His empowered people, His baptized people, His spiritually enriched people, His graciously provisioned people, and yet God was not pleased with most of them. The author of Hebrews, writing to Jews and Gentiles, makes a most interesting statement along the same line of thinking. Hebrews chapter 3, listen as I read this, verse 17. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's talking about the same thing that Paul is. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses, those who were redeemed? And with whom was he not provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So both authors are talking to believers, and both authors mention that because of God's displeasure with his people, many of the Israelites were overthrown in the wilderness. Another way of saying this is that they were cut down in the wilderness, meaning God put them to death. Now, many of us don't like to hear this sort of thing, and some may argue against my next statement, saying that we are not under condemnation in Christ Jesus, which is true. We are not condemned, resulting in eternal separation from God in hell, but Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand something really important. Here it is. Just because we've received all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and that we are not under condemnation because we are under grace, it doesn't mean that we are exempt from the disciplining hand of God. God is not going to be like, oh, you Corinthians, you went and worshiped an idol after I redeemed you. And in the process, you committed fornication. And because you did not exercise self-control, you turned other people away from me. And consequently, those people are lost and they lost the opportunity to hear about my love. But that's okay. No, God is incredibly concerned with how we live our lives and the testimony that we live and speak to the world because we represent him to the world. It's true. We are born-again Christians. Into, we're born, again, as Christians, into God's family, his covenant people, and as we were reminded last week, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you have children, you love them unconditionally, right? There's nothing they could do to not make them your children. They were born by blood. But that doesn't mean that your judgment or your disciplining hand doesn't come down upon them if they do something wrong. Bad behavior still needs to be dealt with, even if there is no condemnation. It is true, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.8, Jesus Christ will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we are born again through his blood. We are his children, regardless of what we do. And Jesus is able to do this not because we are faithful or because we are good, but because God is faithful. He will save us in the end. But that doesn't mean that he's okay with us doing whatever sinful things we want because we are covered by grace. It doesn't mean that he won't discipline us during our lifetime for the sins that we commit here on earth. God doesn't save us from earthly consequences of our sins just because we placed our faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if a murderer is a Christian or not, that individual is going to be sent to prison for life. He may be saved in the end, yet so as by fire. If a Christian goes and gets involved in pornography or an extramarital affair or petty theft or fails to pay his taxes or gossips about everyone in his or her family, there are consequences to those actions, and God is not necessarily going to withhold those undesirable consequences just because we're under grace. 
Paul is targeting our human tendency to be presumptuous about God's free grace. That's what he's after. Now, how do we know all this? Look at what Paul says in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us, the redeemed people of God. These things happened so that we, Gentile Christians, reading this in the year of our Lord, 2023, in a pagan, godless nation, might not desire evil as they did. The word desire can also be translated as lust or crave. In using his, this word, Paul is most likely referring to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, which says, Now the rabble that was among them, I love that word, had a strong craving. And this craving led the redeemed people of God to grumble, complain, and to sin. So our desires, our lusting, our cravings tend to lead us humans into sin, idolatry, and indulging the flesh. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is warning us that we have the same tendencies as our forefathers did, the tendency to desire evil. Our desires and our cravings should be for Jesus. And here is where Paul begins to list out some things that we as redeemed people of God, as followers of Jesus, the living water and the bread of life, should not do. 10 verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The as it is written in that verse is citing uh, Exodus 32.6. The episode is the golden calf. Paul's like, you should not desire to be idolaters or appear as if you're idolaters or come anywhere close to being an idolater. Because look at what happened to some of the Israelites who did this. They were killed in the wilderness. Then he leaves it. 10 verse 8. Do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Paul's like, we should not be driven by our cravings and indulge in sex outside of marriage. And notice that Paul lumps himself in there. He uses the word we. So he's warning himself along with all of them. We, right? So the example he is referring to is where some of the Israelites indulge in sexual immorality in Numbers chapter 25. But it was more than just sexual immorality. It was tied to idolatry. Numbers 25 says that some of the Israelites were invited by their pagan lovers to sacrifice to their gods and to eat with them as they bowed down to these gods. And this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. They were saying that they had freedom in Christ to do anything they wanted and be invited to, uh, into a worshiper's, an idol worshiper's feast, take the meat offered to that idol and eat it as the idolater worships the false god. You see a problem there? Obviously. And in the end... That episode, 23,000 Israelites died because they were having sex outside of marriage and were eating and worshiping the pagan gods along with the ones they were sleeping with, with the godless men and women from the pagan nations around them. Same thing was going on in the Corinthian church. I'd suggest a lot of that same thing is going on in churches around the nation today. And Paul points out that God doesn't just shrug his shoulders at sinful behavior. The God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. Chapter 10, verse 9. Do not put Christ to the test as some of them did. In this situation, uh, referring to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 to 9, some of the Israelites were complaining and grumbling about food because they were sick and tired of the provision that God had graciously given to them, the miraculous bread in the wilderness, manna. They wanted something more exciting in their diet. They were not thankful. They put Christ to the test in that they were challenging God to prove his power to give them what they wanted after he had so generously given, given them what he knew they needed. And they were eating spiritual food, as Paul says in verse 3, but this gracious spiritual food wasn't enough for them. 
They were not satisfied with God's lavish grace, and so they grumbled for more. We have a right to eat meat. We loathe this bread. Same thing going on in the Corinthian church and their believers. They're, they were unhappy with the gracious provision of God, and they were grumbling for more. They wanted to satisfy their fleshly craving for idle meat. They were presumptuously belittling the generous grace of God. 10 verse 10, do not grumble as some of them did. Uh, this verse is referring to Numbers 14 where the spies come back from the land. They'd looked at it and they'd seen that there's full of uh, giants and they come back grumbling and complaining to Moses uh, that he had brought them out in the wilderness to die. The reality was that they didn't have faith that God would follow through and wipe out the nations in the land for them. They believed that the physical giants were too much of a match for the Almighty God. And so God let them suffer the consequences of their lack of faith. A plague entered the camp and killed some of them. So all, that, all those things, kind of like, do not do, do not do, do not do, right? Now verse 11. All these things happened to them as an example for us. God had these things written down for our instruction. For us, those who live in the last days, we, the church, have been given these written accounts in the Old Testament so that we, the church, would be instructed by them in how to live as the covenant people of God now. We are to take heed and we're to take warning. God has not changed. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is still concerned with how his covenant people live because we are the flesh and blood body of Jesus, his presence on earth. Therefore, verse 12, here's the application of all that he's laid down. He's put all this groundwork down. He says, Here's the application of all this. Might be not what you expect, so let me lay this out for you. Our third point is this. Remember the faithfulness of God's provision. Verse 12 to 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I pulled my sermon title from these two verses, Humble Dependence. Therefore, Paul says, because of these examples and the warning and the instruction that our fathers are to us, beware, he says. Let anyone who thinks he is strong enough to eat meat offered to idols in the company of people who are sexually promiscuous take heed lest he fall into worshiping idols with them. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Corinthian believers who considered themselves to be strong in the faith were to beware not to flirt with idolatry and not to give in to the cravings for idols, sacrificial meat, and ritual. The strong Corinthians were arrogantly boasting about how they could stand up against the old idols and temples and traditions without falling into that idolatry. Paul's like, um, be humble. Don't be so naive as to think that you are strong enough to stand up to that temptation on your own. Pride comes before destruction. You'll fall. Simply admit it. Admit that you need Jesus not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Be humble enough to admit that you are completely dependent upon him to satisfy your cravings, to quench your thirst, to provide for your every need. Because here's the truth of the matter. 
This temptation to idolatry and sex and idol meat and grumbling and ingratitude is not unique to you. Everyone is tempted with these things. Everyone. But, verse 13, God is faithful. (laughs) Those are such wonderful words. And these words put our focus back where it needs to be, not on ourselves and our vain attempts to be self-reliant, self-righteous, religious people. Not on our good works or our resolve to do better next time. Not on our sound theological understandings and, and beliefs that we hope will shape our actions. They put our focus on Jesus, the only one who is able to make us holy and pleasing to God. God is faithful when we are not. His grace is sufficient And his forgiveness is lavish. He has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so, Paul says, why treat this incredible grace of God lightly, presumptuously, carelessly? Why even come close to presumptuously belittling the grace of God? God cares enough about you that in every tempting situation you may find yourself in, he's going to provide for you a way of escape. He's going to give you an escape route. This is another example of his lavish and undeserving grace. He understands our weaknesses and our proclivities to sin, and so he gives us an escape. The escape is obvious because it's the only tried and true way to get out of temptation to idolatry or sex or grumbling or murder or whatever else. God will provide you an escape route, and the name of that route is Jesus. And all God asks of you is one thing. Run away from sin and run to Jesus. Look at verse 14. Therefore, Paul says, because God provides Jesus as the avenue of of freedom from idolatry and sin, because Jesus has forgiven you, because God has graciously provided all things that you need in life and godliness, including the way of escape out of each temptation. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, the ones whom are beloved by God and by me, you who I gave my life for, who Jesus gave his life for, the ones who I willingly gave up my rights for, the ones who Jesus willingly gave up his rights for, you are the beloved by the God of the universe, by Jesus, his perfect sacrificial son, and by me, his apostle. Therefore, beloved, do me a favor, Paul says. Do God a favor. Do Jesus a favor. Do yourself a favor. Run from idolatry. Don't flirt with it. It's serious to God. It's what Jesus died to save us from, so take it seriously yourself. Don't test your strength and your fortitude. Don't parade your spiritual knowledge, your theological understanding, and your freedom in Christ. Just get the hell out of there because that is where sin and idolatry lead to. And that is where Jesus went to save you to hell and back again. As Gandalf so urgently pleaded, Run, you fools. And though Paul's writing at first glance can seem like a judgmental passage full of hell, fire, and brimstone, so much do and do not, I want you to see how Paul sandwiches all of this in love. He is concerned for them as brothers and sisters. In verse 1, he's concerned about them. In verse 14, he calls them beloved. And he loves them and he wants what's best for them. How many of you have raised teenagers? One of the hardest things in the world, right? Amen. (laughs) Kelly and I have a curfew for our children while they're living in our house, up to age 21. The curfew is 12 o'clock. My children could tell you that the line I give them along with the curfew is nothing good happens after 12 o'clock. I also told them that when, not if, they get into tough situations, run. Get out of there, right? Get out of Dodge. 
I give them these instructions, these rules, these warnings, not because I don't want them to have fun or enjoy life, but in fact, it's just the opposite. I want them to have the freedom to live life to the fullest, to enjoy long life and prosperity, to be full of happiness and peace. So what? I tell them to run. Paul's talking to the Corinthians as their spiritual father. He's telling them not to go to places as, uh, that would put them in compromising situations where they would be potentially falling into sin. He's telling them to run and go home to Jesus. Because the point that Paul is getting at in chapters 8 to 10 is this. The strong Corinthian believers were standing upon their theologically guaranteed rights to eat whatever they wanted. But knowledge without love is dangerous because knowledge puffs up and pride leads to a fall. Not only were the strong Corinthians carelessly endangering the spiritual lives of the weak brethren and the potential of lost people not placing their faith in Jesus, but they were endangering their own spiritual lives. By eating idle meat, they were not loving others, and they were not loving God. By participating in the idol worshippers' rituals and meat eating, they were encouraging the lost souls that were around them that their idol worship was legit and good, and that God approved to the damnation of the lost souls in hell. How tragic. If these strong believers casually participated in cultic and idolatrous worship rituals, thinking that they would suffer no harm, they were fooling themselves. They were putting Christ to the test, verse 9. They were provoking God to jealousy, verse 22, which we're going to look at next week. Next week, we're going to focus on the jealousy of God, and they were arrogantly self-reliant. And Paul's plea if they took their relationship with God through Jesus Christ even remotely seriously, which they should, if they were grateful for the undeserved grace that they received in Jesus Christ, which they should, if they desired to love God with all that they were, which they should, if they aspired to love their neighbor as themselves, which they should, then they would refrain from doing anything that would potentially cause them to fall into sin or would cause others to question whether or not they were Christian or anything that could cause people to turn their eyes off Jesus. God, the God of our fathers, though he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, is also a jealous God, a God who does not look lightly upon idolatry, a God who does not let idolatry and sexual immorality go unpunished, so God's Spirit-inspired exhortation is that the Corinthians should run. I'm going to close by asking a question. What idols may you have worshipped in the past that you are tempted to flirt with in the present? We're going to look at some of these idols more in depth next week. What idolatrous practices have friends, family, acquaintances invited you into? Practices that you know are not necessarily wrong for you to participate in because you are free in Christ, but these practices are not profitable because they will taint your testimony, tempt you into sin, cause a brother to sin against his conscience, or encourage the lost in their pursuit of godlessness and idolatry. Consider Paul's advice. Let anyone who thinks he, takes, thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You cannot do this on your own. Run away from sin and run to Jesus. He alone is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are struggling with temptation, think about the consequences of your actions. How they not only affect yourself, but your brothers and sisters, the lost, and most importantly, your relationship with God. I want you to listen to Paul's words to the believers in the city of Thessalonica. 
This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Finally then, brothers, talking to believers, talking to his brothers in Christ, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Always wonder what that is. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do, that do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. Interesting. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul is saying, don't disregard God's warning. Love God with all that you are because he's so worth it. When tempted to stand upon your own rights and your freedoms, when tempted to sin and idolatry, remember, run away from sin and run to Jesus because he is faithful and just and he will bring you to the end because only he can sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, we, we love your word. It has so many encouraging things. And then we come to a passage like this that is nothing but warning. And if we didn't know about your goodness and your grace and your lavish love for us and how you willingly gave up everything, sent down Jesus, and he gave up his life for us, these would seem like pretty crazy commands. But it's because of Jesus that we can receive these things. God, we want to be like him because he gave up so much for us. God, we just, we want to be good examples of you. And so if there's places in our hearts, God, where we need, a, we need your spirit to do some work, God, just make us open to that. Help us to be humbly dependent upon you. We know we can't change ourselves. We are, we are powerless to do that. So we ask your Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Give us desires for what you desire. Give us a love for you, first and foremost, and for one another. And God, just um, make us into a beautiful, holy, sanctified, righteous people that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We're so grateful. We love you. We thank you for your word. Use it now to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.